Today we're going to look at what our Lord has to say about the sixth commandment, uh, about thou shall not murder. So we're continuing to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Today there's a, a bit of a transition that the Lord makes. We're going to read verses 21 through 24. The word of the Lord says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now turn to your word, God, the very word of life, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would give us understanding in the words that you're saying here. Father, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would would use this vessel, God, to speak that which you have spoken, Lord, and nothing more and nothing less. Lord, open up our eyes and hearts, God. Pray that this word, Lord, would encourage, equip, convict, comfort all the things that your word does. As you say, your word will not return void. We pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit says. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just 10 Short days ago, down at the low part of our country in Colleton County, on March 2nd, a jury uh, declared a once prominent attorney, Alex Murdoch, guilty of murdering his own wife and his own son, Maggie and Paul. Mr. Murdoch will spend the rest of his natural life in prison with no chance of parole. Interestingly enough, the state did not pursue the death penalty. But assuming that he is in fact guilty, and some of you may have followed this more than I do, But assuming that he is in fact guilty of killing his own wife and his own son in cold blood, what would drive a person to do something so heinous, so egregious, so despicable to the point that many would say that there should be a special place in hell for such a man to suffer? What possesses a person to do that and to that extent? I mean, the details of this case and how the crime was committed will literally make the hairs stand up on the back of your neck. I didn't follow it too much. I did listen to a bit of the sentencing and listened to the judge who was sentencing this man life in prison in the courtroom where this man, Alex Murdaugh's grandfather's own portrait was used to be on the wall, very prominent down there in the low country. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew their family. It was interesting the judge spoke very open and candidly about the things that he was convicted of, and uh, one of the things that struck me was how he said that the judge, of all the convicted murderers that he presided over their cases, whether they were claimed to be guilty or not, he said that none of them, none of the convicted murderers were ever able to mentally go back to the place where they committed the crime. They never mentally could go back and put themselves in that So what drives someone to do such an awful act, such an awful crime? 
Many would say in this case it was money, it was greed, it was self-preservation, and all those things could be true. No one would really know other than God and him. Today's text, Jesus addresses the sixth commandment of thou shalt not murder, a sin that I would venture to say you and I have not committed either, even overtly. Only Jesus addresses the heart of the matter. He addresses the sin of murder in the heart, which today we would do well to tremble over, even as much as the overt act itself. Murder of the heart, the sins that lead to murder, such as anger, hate, rage, envy, these very sins that lead to murder, that's what Jesus is addressing today. These are the emotions and sins that, that lead somebody to do these such horrible acts of violence. This is no surprise to us as Christians, at least it shouldn't be. This is how it was from the very beginning. If you think about the very first sin after the fall of Adam was murder. Cain killed Abel. Well, actually, you could say the first sin was Cain not offering the right sacrifice, but uh, Cain killed Abel, but why? Why did Cain kill Abel? Genesis chapter 4, verse 4 through 8, we see why. It says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard he accepted for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We see the root there started with anger. Anger that God didn't accept his sacrifice. Anger that his brother brought a sacrifice that the Lord had regard for. It started the whole set of motions. We see this in the book of Esther. Anger led Haman to seek not only to kill one Jew, but to kill all of the Jews. Esther 3 and verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom. So how about the murder of John the Baptist? Skipping ahead to the New Testament. Mark 6, verse 17, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. That word there, grudge, in the original language in Greek means to be held in, to be ensnared, to be enraged with, to set oneself against. It latched on to her this anger and rage towards John the Baptist. This led her to convince Herod to behead John the Baptist. What about the murder of our own Lord? 
Well, if you recall, before he was crucified, his own hometown tried to kill him. And why did they do that? Luke chapter 4 tells us. Verse 28, it says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Jesus had just got done preaching a message against his own hometown because they did not receive him as a prophet. And they were filled with rage. And verse 29 says, They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. This, these people who saw Jesus raised as a little boy, now all of a sudden they were filled with rage and then they acted upon that and they tried to kill Jesus. And we learned that Jesus was able to slip through the crowds. But his crucifixion, it started by anger. In verse, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 6, after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Luke 6 verse 11 tells us, but they were themselves filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. You can go to the New Testament church, or the new church uh, with the apostles, excuse me, the, uh, the New Testament early church is what I'm looking for. They were thrown in jail for preaching Jesus and were told to stop preaching in his name. And then what does it say in Acts 5? After, after Paul, uh, Peter in verse 29 says, we must obey God rather than men. And then he says again, Jesus is the savior that you crucified. You hung him on a cross, he says, but God has exalted Jesus. He, they preached Jesus even though they were told not to. And then in verse 33, it says, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Cut to the quick is one word that means vexed with raging anger. And they were ready to act upon that and kill Jesus. Excuse me, kill Peter and the apostles. Well, I could go on. These are just a few accounts that we see in the Bible. But the point is, and I hope you get the point, that anger is the primary sin that leads to the greater sin of overt murder. Here in our text today, Jesus corrects the rabbinic teaching that had focused only on the external overt act of murder. Now, as we dive into this text, I want to remind you of the principles that we learned, uh, I believe, two weeks ago. There's general principles that we learned from these six accounts, starting at chapter 5, verse 21, going through all the end of the chapter. These six illustrations that our Lord gives us, where he says, you heard that it was said, but I say to you, when we approach this text, I want to remind you of these general principles of these illustrations. And the first thing is that Jesus is confirming the law, as he did back in verse 17. He's confirming the law and rebuking the misuse of the law while giving us also a pattern for our own sanctification. So these six illustrations are not to be just taken as, okay, that's what God says about murder, great. This is what God says about adultery, great. This is what God says about taking oaths, that's great. But it's a pattern that Jesus gives us for our own sanctification. You know, as we learn the fourth commandment, we learn that, Yes, it's external, but it's also an internal desire to delight and to meditate upon God's word and to have thoughts that are focused upon the Lord. So it's all, we take these six illustrations and God gives us these as a pattern for our sanctification. So it's more than just these six examples. Jesus has given us a pattern for the whole word of God for the whole entire law. 
Second, the law of God is not only concerned with the negative, but with the positive. Okay, that's another illustration or another principle we get from these illustrations. It's not just don't do this, it's do this. Number three, God is more concerned with your internal desires, your motives, and your thoughts than your external actions. Now remember, the external actions are still very important to the Lord. The Jews ignored the internal completely while they twisted many times the external. They ignored the internal and twisted the external conformance to the law. Number four, finally, the ultimate goal is not to just avoid sin, but to be more and more like your heavenly father, to be more and more like Christ. So take these principles and let's go into this illustration today. Uh, We're going to look at verse 21 and 22, uh, which addresses the negative aspect of the sixth commandment as Jesus corrects the rabbinic teaching. And then next time I'm in the pulpit, we'll look at verses 23 and 24, and we'll look at the positive aspects of the sixth commandment. So let's look at our text. Let's walk through this passage beginning at verse 21. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told. Now, I I described that the last time that I had preached. So if you haven't listened to that sermon from two weeks ago, I encourage you to go do that. Jesus is not uh, correcting the written word of God. He's correcting the tradition, the oral teaching of the rabbis throughout the ages. He says, You've heard that the ancients were told. Okay, but... I say to you, but I say to you. Jesus is taking issue with the rabbinic teaching, not the very law that he penned with his own finger. So what does he say? He said, you heard that it was said that it was told by the ancients, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Depending on your translations, you might see that you shall not commit murders in all caps. This is because it's a direct quotation of the Old Testament. He quotes Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, which is in the Ten Commandments. And again in Deuteronomy 5, 17, excuse me, the Sixth Commandment. Then he adds a rabbinic teaching that would have been very familiar to his audience where he says, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court or Another way to say that is liable to judgment, but the way that they would receive that is liable to the man's court, man's judgment, not God's judgment. The the rabbinic teaching focused only on the overt external act of killing, of unjust killing. And that's what the commandment is. The commandment is not any killing because there is just killing that God prescribes in his word. The commandment thou shalt not murder is in regards to the unjust taking of life. Okay? The unjust taking of life. But the rabbinic teaching only focused on the overt act. So if they had never killed somebody unjustly, if they had never overtly murdered somebody, they checked the box. This is why the guy who comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, what are the commandments? He lists them. He says, I've done them all. Because he ever was so focused, as long as I didn't do the external act, then I have obeyed the law of God. Jesus is not correcting, or excuse me, Jesus is not superseding the very law of God. He's correcting their misinterpretation of the very law of God. 
And then he says, but I say to you. Here Jesus is establishing his authority. Rabbis and teachers would never do that. They would never say, I say to you, and then give a command from authority. And that's what I don't ever do that as well. I would never stand up here and say, hey, you've heard that the word of God, or you heard that it said this, but I say to you. Now, how would you feel? You're like, who is this heretic, right? No, it says, but God's word says. God says, thus saith the Lord. And so these rabbis, they would always quote other rabbis. Okay, rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that. They would use these arguments from authorities, right? But Jesus comes and says, but I know, but I, I say to you. He's establishing his divinity, his authority. Next, Jesus uses what's called a rhetorical device to show the root of murder and the progression of it. So he's not saying that someone's guilty by using these certain words. If you look at the text, he he says, if someone's angry with his brother, he's guilty in the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Jesus is not condemning the use of words, okay? So if you've ever called someone a fool, all right, he's not saying that you are going to hell because you called somebody a fool. He's not saying that at all. These are progressions. Jesus is using this rhetorical device to show the progression of anger and the outward uh, manifestation as that progression gets greater and greater. Now, I want to look at each three, uh, each three of these progressions. The first one says, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, if you have a King James Version, you have what's called a textual variant. It adds without cause. So your version might say, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause shall be guilty before the court. This is what we call a textual variant. Some manuscripts have that without cause. Some manuscripts have, uh, have it without. It's important to know that the earliest manuscripts do not have that textual variant. Because, and I would hold to that, I believe that the original penned uh, autograph from Matthew does not have that part. It would seem that if that was the case, then there would be a justified reason to be angry with somebody. Okay? Whoever's angry with his brother without cause. Well, I had really good cause to be angry with them because they did such and such or they did so and so, right? This doesn't seem to fit with the entirety of Scripture, okay? So because they're not in the earliest of manuscripts, and if you look at the entirety of a Scripture, there's no other Scripture that gives you a reason, a just cause to be angry with your brother. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, it says all, all means all, All bitterness, all wrath, and all anger, all clamor and slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Colossians 3.8, it says, But now you also put them all aside. Again, all, Paul means all. Put it all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Psalm 37.8, Cease from anger 
It doesn't say unless there's a just cause to be angry with a brother. And forsake wrath, do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. But Mark, what about having righteous indignation? I know what you're thinking. Okay, isn't there a scripture that says it's okay to have righteous anger? And oftentimes, Ephesians 4.26 is cited. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So the word be angry there is a verb and there's actually not a consensus on the transcripts as to what the inflected voice of that verb is. I'm gonna get a little technical with you because I think it's important. Some manuscripts Uh, Some manuscripts have that in the original language in the middle voice, and some have it in the passive voice. This is important because if it's in the passive voice, this means the subject is being acted upon, not the one acting. In other words, if this is the correct manuscript, if this is the correct uh, voice, that it's in the passive voice, then it could be understood that the person is not actually angry but being angered or being provoked there's something he's being acted upon there's something outside of himself that is acting upon him to provoke him to anger and this seems to make sense because if you look at the text and you look at it that way be provoked to anger but don't sin have you ever been provoked to anger has someone ever poked you so much that it it provokes you to anger and then the rest of the Verse says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This isn't Paul saying, hey, don't go to sleep anger. He's saying, don't let it reside in you. Get rid of it. As the text in Ecclesiastes says, do not let, do not let anger fester inside of your heart. And furthermore, Ephesians 4.26, right after that verse, five verses later, chapter 5, verse 31 Paul uses the noun form of that word, anger, and says, get rid of it all. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. This is the noun form of the verb he just used in verse 26. He says, let it all. He says, says, let all of it be put away from you. Get rid of it. And then the next verse, verse 32, after you get rid of the anger, the bitterness, the clamor, now do this, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic about that because there are, as I said, some differences in the manuscripts. And also, it is in the imperative tense, which is a command. Okay, so I'm not dogmatic about it. Uh, But even if it is, even if it is a command, hey, you should be angry. Sure, I'll I'll go along with that. Let's just pretend that is, okay, yes, be angry, but don't sin in that anger, right? Does it say in the Ephesians text who to be angry with? It just says be angry, right? Does it say be angry with a brother or a sister? It doesn't say be angry. If you look at the rest of Scripture on what we ought to hate, or what we ought to, even if there is room to be angry for something, it's never towards a person, it's towards our own sin. So I'll play along with that righteous indignation, but if it's anything other than your own sin, then I think you've erred. I think you've erred. Now let's go back to the text, because the text says, 
Whoever is angry with his brother, whoever is angry with his brother, the object of the anger is a person made in the very image of God. And Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So all that to say, friends, is I don't believe the without cause is in the original text. I believe that it says, whoever's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus is saying here, you have it all wrong. You say whoever murders in the overt sense and externally is guilty, but I say whoever's angry with his brother is guilty. This is how the law always was, but the Jews, as I said, ignored the internal. They totally ignore it. It's right there in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. Do not have anger in your heart. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. You know, some people don't like Leviticus. There's so much good in Leviticus. Don't skip over the book of Leviticus. 19, verse 17 says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus starts with the sin of anger in your heart towards a brother. Then he goes to the next level. Look at the text here. He says, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Jesus is using this rhetorical device. Whoever's angry with his brother in his heart is guilty before the court. That could be any court. could be any judgment. But now he says, goes to the next level. Whoever says you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court. Now, that word is Sanhedrin in the Greek. Okay, so that's a higher court. So Jesus is using this progression on how anger progresses and manifests itself in us. And the more it does, the more guilty we are. Are. That word is raka, you good for nothing. It means empty head. It's a term of reproach that was used by the Jews. It has the progression. It's now vented anger. It's now reproach towards another. Then he says, the next level, which he says, you shall be guilty enough into fiery hell. He says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Now, this word fool in the Greek word is moros. So it's where we get moron. It just means dull or stupid or morally empty. Now, again, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not condemning calling people these certain names or any name for that matter. What Jesus is doing, he's using cultural words that expressed the most unholy and contemptuous thoughts that one could have to express to another. Did you catch that? And he did this not to condemn the words, but to condemn the feelings in the heart which led to the action. Elsewhere, Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. He's saying, you Jews, are, you're only indicting people for the overt act, but I'm telling you that those that inwardly hate their brother are guilty of the same sin as murder. Listen, brothers and sisters, 
The sin of murder overtly is, is egregious, not, not downplaying taking one's life. But in case there was any confusion with this text, the Apostle John clears it up in 1 John 3, 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a what? What's it say? Is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. That one who harbors this anger and hatred is guilty enough, it says, to go into fiery hell. Now that word fiery hell, in the original, it was a place called the Valley of Hinnon. I believe Pastor Swan mentioned it the other week. It was just to the south of Jerusalem. This is where they would throw all the garbage and the dead animals and the filth and the, and the muck. It would be cast out, thrown into the Valley of Hinnon, and it would be burned. It would constantly be burning up, and the stench was awful. And this was a symbol that Jesus used, and it was the word that was used by Jesus when he talked about hell. It was a symbol of the wicked for their future destruction. Jesus here is correcting. He's saying, look, for generations you've been taught that the sixth commandment to be guilty of it is to actually commit murder externally, the external act. But I say to you that the sixth commandment is broken when you're angry with one another. You are culpable. You're liable. And that guilt grows as your anger festers and turns into hatred and contempt. He says, you're in fear of fiery hell the apostle john says it this way in first john four twenty: if someone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother who he sees cannot love god whom he has not seen and this is the commandment we have from him that the one who loves god should love his brother also jesus is speaking on the perpetual state of man or woman's heart, of anger and hatred. He's saying those are the ones that are in danger of hell. He's not talking about someone losing their salvation. He's not saying if you're a Christian, you're truly in Christ, and you stumble and you suffer in the sin of anger, that you're in danger of fiery hell. Jesus is talking about that those who live in that constant state of hating others and being angry with others, is that they're in danger of fiery hell. It's that big of a deal, brothers and sisters, to Jesus. Anger in the heart is that big of a deal. He looks at it. Friends, he knows your thoughts. He knows your mind. He knows that angry thought that you've had towards that person, that contemptuous and bitter and slanderous thoughts that you've had. He knows the anger feeling that you've had. And let me ask you a question, friends. When you have that anger festering in your heart, Church, whoever, does that anger make you think good things about that person? Does that anger make you think that, make you feel like you want that good person to have good things? No, there's always ill thoughts towards that person, is there not? When you have anger fester, you want that person to suffer, don't you? Either physically or maybe not physically, maybe emotionally or mentally. Maybe you want that person to get some sort of revenge for what they did to you. God looks at that as murder, friends. 
Now, is it, is it that big of a deal, Mark? This is, feels harsh. It feels harsh. Yes, it's that big of a deal, friends. This is the problem with our culture. This is the problem that the culture has affected Christianity because we don't know God. We don't know how holy he is and how separate he is. This is a big deal. His righteousness is far beyond and his holiness is far beyond what we can imagine. Yes, it's absolutely a big deal. We cannot make God like ourselves and wink at the sin of anger and weak at the sin of hatred towards another. God is holy. He is not like us, friends. He is not like us. Yes, it's that big of a deal. Your internal thoughts, your internal emotions, your internal heart is a big deal to God. Now, I want to address the word brother that he uses here. Look at the text where he says, who is angry with his brother. <clears throat> and actually, it's used all throughout the Apostle John in the text that I mentioned in 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. He says, angry with your brother. He says, if someone loves God but hates his brother, it's the same Greek word. And I think it's very important. I want you to key in on this here. Okay, every single word is inspired and every single word needs to be paid attention to. He uses the word brother, which in the Greek literally means your actual blood brother, but it's also used as a Christian brother. It's somebody who's very close to you. Okay? Why does he use this term? Why does he use this term and not another term like neighbor? Or the stranger that cut you off on your way to work or the grocery store? Is Jesus narrowing the scope of the sin to only being angry with those close to us, our family or our blood family or our spiritual family? Is it okay to be angry towards unbelievers? He's just addressing this as anger towards your brother. Is it okay to be angry with that person who cut you off on the road or those outside your blood family or outside your spiritual family? I pondered this. In my study, why does he use, why is the word brother used so much? Like, you would think that he would, you know, talk about those that hate God and how we want to be angry because they have vileness towards God, right? But let me ask you to consider this, friends. Consider the times in the past few weeks, months, or years that you've experienced the most anger that's festered in your heart. Think about that just for a moment. The type of anger that you would absolutely be embarrassed if others could see. If your anger and your thoughts could be flashed on a screen, I want you to think about that. It may have been today. It may have been last week or last year. Think about that last time that that anger festered so deep and be honest this anger didn't fester good wishes upon that person, did it? As I mentioned earlier, think about that anger. Did you not wish harm on that person, either physically, emotionally, and mentally? Was there not also a spirit of revenge, a spirit of spitefulness? Now I want to ask you a question. Who were you angry with? Who are you angry with? Was it that stranger who cut you off on the way to work? That might have made you angry, but I'm talking about that deep anger. Was it not someone close to you? 
Was it not a family member? Was it your mom? Your dad? Your brother? Was it your sister? Was it your own child? Was it your spouse that you held such deep anger towards? I contend to you that brother is used here because God knows that those closest to us are the ones that we have the most anger towards. And this just shows us, friends, how much more heinous and egregious this sin is. Why is it that we can so easily love and have more tender hearts with those outside of those so close to us? Outside of our blood family? Why is it so easy to get so angry with our own family, our extended family, or those in our own home? We need to repent, brothers and sisters. We are such hypocrites, are we not? Our family sees. Your children see. They see you angry with them and then put on a smiling face and show so much love to those when you come to church or when you go to work or when you see a neighbor. God sees right through that, friends. God sees right into your heart. I want to conclude by asking you to consider how the Lord has treated you. How has Christ dealt with you? If anyone has any just cause to be angry with you, to be wrathful towards you and to hold you in contempt, to seek revenge by sending us to suffer eternally, is it not God? But because he is rich in mercy, but because of his great love with which he loved us, even though you committed open treason towards him and have rebelled against him, rebelled against his law, he has not forsaken you. He has not left you. Amen? His love is unending. His love is never failing for those who are in Christ. Knowing that this type, knowing that this is the type of Lord and Savior we have, that is the only one that has just cause to pour out his anger and wrath upon us, but he hasn't. Knowing that this is the Lord and Savior we have, how can we ever, friends, how can we ever be so prideful and so puffed up to think that we have a right to be angry with another? Maybe it's because we truly don't understand his grace. Maybe it's because you still have not been even converted You don't understand his grace because you have not repented and been a partaker of his grace. Perhaps you need to examine your own salvation or lack thereof. If you're in Christ, brothers and sisters, and you struggle with anger, first join the club. We all do it at some extent, but repent Not only repent, friends, confess your sins. Agree with God that your anger is as bad as he declares it to be. And weep over it because of its egregious nature. 
Weep over it, friends, because it is offensive to God. Don't just weep over it because you lashed out in anger at somebody or raised your voice at somebody or hurt somebody. That should give you sorrow, but the more sorrow should come from is godly sorrow, that you have offended a holy and righteous God. That's why you should weep over it. Friends, just as the murder of Maggie and Paul Murdar was offensive to God, so is your unrighteous and malicious anger and hatred. God despises it, friends. He hates it. But there's good news. You can repent. And brothers and sisters, those that are in Christ, take a, take a word from the Apostle Peter in Acts 3.9 where he says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You don't have to be bound by that anger. You don't have to hide it. God sees it. Even if it only stays in your heart and no one else ever sees it, brothers and sisters, God sees it. God knows. But you don't have to live in that bondage, friends. If you're not in Christ, you will stay in that bondage. Come to Christ and live. That, that anger will send you to hell. Come to Christ and live. If you're in Christ, Friends, you don't have to remain in that bondage. But you know what? It takes a lot, a lot of God's grace, but it also takes a lot of your repentance and weeping over your sin because it is displeasing to God. I end with Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Friends, you can't hide it. Just go ahead and confess it. You can't hide that anger. Just go ahead and tell God. Confess it. Confess it to those around you. Be open about it. Confess it to a brother or sister in Christ that can help pray for you, hold you accountable. Don't conceal it as the proverb says. You will not prosper. It will not work. And if you desire to be like Christ, you desire to be free from that anger from that hatred, from that contempt, from that bitterness. You desire to do it, but friends, you can't hide it. it. You won't prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes your sin, agree with God, forsake it, and you will find compassion. We need God's grace to do this. We need God's help. But friends, don't hide it. Run to Christ. Flee to Christ. He is there. He is there to help in your time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you, God, justly can condemn us. You, God, have every right, Lord, to be angry with us, to be wrathful towards us, God. But as your word says, because of your rich in mercy, because the depths of your grace are so deep, Lord, that despite our sin, our anger, our hatred that we've done, you've shed your love upon us, God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly understand the words you say here in your text, in your holy word. The offense of anger towards another 
Those made in the image of God, how dare us, how dare us fester anger in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would break us of this, God. Help us, God, to be tender-hearted, as your word says. Help us, God, to get rid of all anger, all malice, all of it, God. If there's anything for us to be angry with, God, it ought to be our own sin. But God, we have faith. Help us to walk by faith, Lord, that, that you won't leave us in our state, that you, God, by your grace will help us, God. Precept upon precept, God, day by day, Lord, show love to others and not, God, allow anger to fester in our bosoms and be a fool, as it says in Ecclesiastes. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of your mercy and grace, that it would help us, God, not to puff ourselves up and think we're so high and mighty that we don't deserve the way we've been treated. We don't deserve to not think that we don't deserve that and be offended by it and get angry by it. Help us to be humble, to be meek, Lord, so that we won't be provoked to anger. We thank you, Lord that you have withheld your wrath upon us. Now, God, for those that may be listening or here today even that aren't in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would use your word, the sixth commandment, as a mirror to them, God, to show them their hearts. Their hearts are like dead man's bones, God. They're full of hatred and wickedness and all kind of debauchery. But use it, God, to draw them to you to repentance and faith, that you would use the law of God as you as you do, to bring others to Christ. Draw them by your Holy Spirit, God. And as you said, Lord, in John 6, that you will no wise cast out anyone who comes to you.